Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear David Crabb. It's so big. It's like such a basket of cock. It's an unbelievably big package, right? That and more. But before that, hey, did you know that every episode of Risk has a table of contents? If you go to risk-show.com slash listen, you'll see all the tables of contents of the show. They list the storytellers, where you can find them, where you can find the bands that do the songs and all of that. But then there's also comments, you know, where Risk fans can chime in about how they felt about this or that story on the episode. My gosh, the last episode uh, called Altered States, there was a story by Jupiter Diego that especially got a lot of comments there. And I joined in the conversation and I thought, hey, it'd be interesting to kind of talk about how all that went down, that whole conversation there. But then I thought, ah, you know what? I could do like an audio essay of me talking about that. If I could make an MP3 of that for our Patreon fans, you know, our, our patrons, if you go to patreon.com slash risk, there's all kinds of bonus content there. Videos, MP3s, stories that we haven't run on the show before, old episodes that have been remastered and had the ads removed. There's so much to find if you become a part of our Patreon community at patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com com slash risk and you know there's prizes and perks you can get it can be as little as a dollar a month three dollars a month five dollars whatever you want you know it can be as much as you want too and of course the more you give the more the prizes get big and substantial access to our storytelling classes chances to do one-on-one skype sessions with me personalized stamps.com songs there's a lot of great stuff there and it means the world to us that our fans help us keep all this running at patreon.com slash risk so go there if you're already a patron you can go there and you can hear me talking about you reacting to (laughs) jupiter diego's story last week okay now here's the show
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Herbie Hancock behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Make Believe. These are three stories people stuck in situations where they just had to take on a role and just commit to the bit, as we say. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a remarkable story that was recorded at our last San Francisco show. Jamie Denbo, holy shit, she really knocked it out of the park. And she's been in so many wonderful things. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Difficult People, Veep, Children's Hospital, Orange is the New Black. Her list of credits is amazing. You can find Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Denbo. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded at our show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. That show happens once a month, and my gosh, those bootleg shows are are so amazing. That show is really on a roll. Beowulf Jones is the producer of the show out there, and he's doing an amazing job. This is David Crabb, who has been with us since the very beginning. He's one of our very favorite storytellers. He teaches for the Story Studio, our school sometimes. If you haven't read his book, Bad Kid, my therapist has. (laughs) I walked into a therapy session the other day. I was like, oh, you're reading my friend's book. My therapist was like, your friend's book is amazing. So how about that? You can also find David at davidcrab.net. Here he is now with a story we call, There is a Light and It Never Goes Out. So years and years ago, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Uh, If you don't know what Crohn's disease is, it is an autoimmune disease. Uh, It basically turns like all of your digestive tract into something that came out of like Jeff Goldblum's fly machine. It's a nightmare, pooping and internal issues and weight loss and anemia. Now, I was in a really, really bad place when this happened. I got down to like about 115 pounds. Uh, I had these Johnny Depp cheekbones and everyone would comment on photos of me and say, David, you look great. And I was like, thanks, I'm dying. I didn't have health insurance. I was a working artist. I was a writer. I was an actor. I was a bartender. I was a waiter. You know, I did that whole routine. So if any of you have ever not had health insurance and really needed it, you know, you try to find ways to make things work. Like my doctors uh, were my friends, friends, cousins, brothers who were medical students in Boston. And I would call them on the phone and they would be my doctor. I would order prescriptions that I needed uh, from uh, Canadian pharmacies. The pills would come with no writing on the box. I'd eat them. I would try to find Um, doctors. There was in the East Village in New York, there was a guy who was famous called the Punk Rock Doctor. He had neck tattoos and a shaved head. I went to his office and I will always remember when he took me in a weird closet full of plastic masks, like boxes of them, like Dexter or something. And he proceeded to take my blood with an ungloved hand while drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee with a gloved hand. And I was like, nope. And... 
And then, of course, there's online medical forums, which is where really desperate people go to scare the fuck out of each other. I would go to Crohn's and ulcerative colitis forums, and I remember one thread I was on for days, I was so fascinated, was all about, like, at-home fecal transplants, where, I I know, uh, where, like, a very nice woman from, like, somewhere in Michigan was like, all you need is some saline, a blender, and if you have a child, a cup of their poop. And I was like, don't go to her house for margaritas at any point ever. And it was really, really difficult and rough to kind of ever get better, obviously. And then at one point, I finally got health insurance because I'd been an actor on stage and I was part of the Actors' Equity Union. And I had done enough hours on stage that they gave me six months of health insurance. And I was like, I'm going on a medical bonanza vacation. I was so excited. (laughs) Now, right when this happened, I also turned 40. So it was almost as if there had been little workmen inside my body, like on Fraggle Rock. And they had just been struggling to keep the shit afloat. And they got word that I was 40 and health insurance. They were like, let her go, boys. Just let her go. Everything fell apart. I had a Crohn's flare. I literally could not stop crapping. I got anemic. I was always in like a fever. And then I got like arthritis in my knees and my wrists. I had to have my boyfriend like open like the top of an orange juice container for me. It was awful, but I had health insurance. I was like, I'm going to like fix this shit. Right when I was about to go see a doctor, I was at home and I remember I was doing the seven minute workout on YouTube to a Katy Perry song because, you know, health first. And I remember... I was doing like a chairlift when I heard it sounded like a rubber band pop in my shoulder. Like, oh, and I was like, I don't know what that is, but it really hurts now. So I made an appointment to the doctor, and about four days later, I went. Now, I have never dealt with sports medicine doctors, so I did not know they were all like retired young football players who were also gay porn stars. I was like, I walked in, and I was just greeted by muscles and dick. I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I hope more of this falls apart so I can come back. I, they put me in my little gown and I was laying and, and this guy came in and he was this tall, muscular guy with crystal blue eyes. He looked like if a wolf became a man. <laughs> and he walked in and he was like, I'm Ken. And I was like, okay, Dr. Ken. Like, just Ken, you know? I remember that like, as he talked to me, like, it was like there was invisible ice on his nipples. I was like, it's not that cold in here. I don't know what's going on with your massive grapefruit pecs and your like, erect needle nipples, but more. And like, I remember he, he was so muscly that like, the space between the buttons of his shirt was opening. Like, his body wanted out to me. Like, his body like, his, it really wanted out, right? As I'm laying there, I'm looking at him in his face, and I'm doing that thing that I did in middle school locker rooms. It was my mantra. was like, don't look down, don't look down, don't check him out. And I'm staring so hard into his amazing, like, five o'clock shadow face that, like, it's probably weirder than if I just, like, looked at his dick and was like, can I has? Like, it was probably just, like, weird. Like, he must have been like, that's an intense stare, buddy. So he's telling me, like, yeah, we're going to do some MRIs today. And as he's talking, oh, here's your other doctor. And this guy was him. he's like, hey, I'm Mike. Dr. Mike. Mike is like six and a half feet tall. He looks Israeli. He has that thing that some Israeli men have where their eyes are gray and it looks like they were at a goth party the night before and all like the mascara didn't come off. And he walks up to me and I'm laying sideways and as he's talking to Ken and his crotch is right in my face and it looks like it's just stuffed with... It's so big. It's like such a basket of cock. It's an unbelievably big package, right? Like, if his dick was a sound, it would be that sound, you know, in an action movie preview where, like, the screen goes black and then you just hear a Like, that's, like, that's what his dick was like. You know what I mean? It was just boom in my face. 
So they're talking, I'm laying there on my side, and then they're like, okay, we've got to inject this sort of ink into you so that you can go into the MRI. So they roll me over, like, as I roll over, like, my gown comes up, so my, like, my little American apparel under my butt is kind of exposed to Ken and Mike, and they're behind me, and what they're doing is they're shoving a needle in my shoulder, but they have to watch a live x-ray video of it, right? So it's being filmed, they're seeing the live feed, because they have to be careful not to hit any, like, certain ligaments or whatever, right? So as they're doing that, they're right behind me in my ear, and this is what I hear as I'm experiencing this kind of pain, is I hear, yeah, uh, no, that's, that's cool, Ken. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, a little deeper? Uh, yeah. I'm like, fucking health insurance is amazing. This is like some, this is some Hellraiser pleasure pain shit happening right now, you know what I mean? So they inject me with the ink, and then they send me into the MRI room, and I'm immediately greeted by a girl named Becky, and Becky is in, like, pale pink scrubs with a bunch of little maracas that are, like, shaking, because they have the little lines, the squiggle lines to let you know. They're, the maracas, they're making noise. Um, they're all over her scrubs. She greets me, and she walks me past the uh, technician who's looking at the computer, and she walks me into the MRI room. Now, have any of you, how many of you have had MRIs? Okay, a lot of you, all right? So I never had one, but I was like, I'm fully prepared to do this. I get there, and as I lay down and prepare, and she arranges me, I look in that hole, and I'm like, that is not big enough for David Crabb's body to go inside. Like, that is not, you know that scene in Poltergeist where the mom looks down the hallway, and she's like, Carolyn, and it gets long, and like, that's how I feel looking in this fucking MRI tube. But she's like, no, and as I start to go down and lay, I start to panic, and I'm asking all these questions. I'm like, well, how long does it take, and would you know if it hurts, and then, where are you from, Becky? Oh, I love that. Pennsylvania, like I'm totally just vamping, right? Like I don't want to go in the hell tube. And finally she's like, you seem really nervous. Do you want to hear music? And I'm like, okay. And she's like, yeah, we give you earplugs and then we put on headphones because the machine makes so much noise, but we can pump music in there. What do you want to hear? And I'm like, the Smiths. Uh, I have really positive memories of the Smiths. I imagine a little jangly, like, you know, uh, this charming man or something. I'm like, that'll work, right? She puts the headphones on. Mm, and the, immediately when the wall, the top of the MRI is in my face, I'm like, I'm going to die in this. I'm a little man. I'm a little man in a big box. So I go in there, and immediately the music starts playing. And of all songs, it's, sing me to sleep. It's the suicide song, right? Don't feel bad for me. And as I'm hearing this, the MRI machine starts going, and I knew it would be loud, but I had no idea. And this paired with like, you're gonna kill yourself tonight. It's just like the worst, right? Now, as this is happening, I start to panic. Becky has given me what is like a little squeeze tube at the end of a baster. And it's like this, you know, squeeze this tube if you freak out and we'll help you, right? But I'm like, I'm gonna be a man. I'm gonna be a man like Ken and Mike. I'm not gonna like squeeze the tube, you know? So I'm in there and it's, and finally I panic and I just start honka honka like a panic ridden clown, honka. They eject me, and Becky walks in, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know what happened. I just got a little nervous. I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I'll go back in. But hey, you so, so you're from Pennsylvania. Like, I'm crazy, right? And Becky is humoring me, and she's being cool. And I say, look, um, I'm just really nervous. Can I do the stand-up one? She's like, those don't work for what you have. She's like, look, this is going to take a while, and if we've already done like 10 minutes, and you've got a ways to go, if you leave today, we're just going to have to do this all over again. As I start to panic more, I look at Becky, look through the window at the technician, and she gives the technician a look like we got a live one. Like, I see it. Do you know what I mean? And it emasculates me so much. It's like, oh, and I'm like, put me back in, bitch. Like, that's how I, I feel, right? Like, you're not going to look at some fucking Miranda like that at me with your fucking shaking maracas, you bitch. Um, so... 
before I go in, she is very kind. She's like, look, you know, this is hard for a lot of people. Do you want me to blindfold you? And I'm like, what kind of response is like, I have a lot of anxiety. How about if I blind you? Like, and I'm like, definitely not. So she puts me back in. The first thing I hear is glass shatter and a woman scream, help! And then a man say, listen to me! And then a woman says, every 10 minutes in America, a woman is the victim of domestic abuse. And I'm like, you don't even pay for the Pandora without like domestic violence commercials. And as this woman is screaming and I'm getting all these stats about raped and murdered and beaten women, going in again and again. And then after four minutes, because they're in cycles, there's a pause and I'm like, how much longer is this? She's like, we're just gonna do another one. I'm like, okay. It starts up again and then over that comes, all I ever wanted, all I ever needed is here. And I danced to enjoy the song. I was a goth kid, like I love that song, but in this context, it's like, enjoy the silence. It's just, And I am panicking so, so bad. And then in the next pause, I say, Becky, I don't think I can do this. And then she's like, just try. She starts up the machine and I start to get the next time like restless leg syndrome. Like I feel like I'm gonna like shake and like break my bones getting out of this machine. And this funny thing happens, it's like a blank white space. It's like people talk about it when they're in car accident. Like everything kind of slows down. And it's almost like I astral project out of my body and I'm looking at the room full of like millions of dollars of medical equipment and I see my stupid little like hospital sock feet sticking out of this machine. And I think, I am so fucking lucky to be here right now, right? I am so happy to be inside this terrifying box. You know, there was a two-week period, like six months before that, where I was literally, like, internally bleeding. And for two weeks, I was like, I'm just going to eat rice. Like, that's how I decided to hopefully stop whatever inside me was bleeding endlessly. I'm going to eat rice, you know? And the fact that I can be in this machine right now, getting this treatment, and it calmed me down so much... And in the next break, Becky said, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And I said, how many more do I have? And she's like, we've got about 22 more minutes. And I was just like, hit me. And she hit me, like revved up, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again. Finally, it's over, and she ejects me. I feel like I'm a man, because I did it. It's like 34, I'm like, yeah, what the fuck, yeah, hey, bitch. You know, like, I'm just being like, I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Becky is so sweet. She's like, you did so good, Mr. Crab. And as we're walking out, I see the technician looking at my scans. And I'm like, so how did I do? And the technician just kind of says, ooh, your doctor's going to have to talk to you. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong now with my stupid body? A few weeks later, I get a phone call, and it's from Ken. And it was like getting a call from a phone sex operator. And Ken's like, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, uh, you tore your labrum, totally. You're going to need a surgery and probably like six to 12 months of like physical therapy. And you've got a bunch of uh, breaks and weird tremors and muscular problems in your back called hill sacks lesions. Usually people get those after they relocate and locate their shoulders for years. So we don't fucking understand what the shit that, he didn't say that, but that's like how it felt. He was like, what the fuck, bro? I was panicked, but then I realized like I have insurance now. I can take care of this. 
it's a realization that I had that was so new to me in that moment. And I, I luckily still have health insurance now. And I don't mean to get overly political, but we live in a world where a lot of people don't have that gift. And they're not that lucky. And I'm not trying to tell you guys to go online and sign fucking petitions and get yourself on a watch list. But let's try to make sure that it's 2017 in America and we make sure that everyone gets the health insurance and the service and the respect and the dignity they deserve. Thank you. Meow, 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 beautiful meow, meow, day. Meow, 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 beautiful. Meow, meow, telephone. Meow, 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 beautiful. Oh, Mr. Rogers, meow. Meow, 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 telephone. Meow, meow, beautiful. Meow, 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 telephone. Oh, Mr. Rogers, meow. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, 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 beautiful. Meow, meow, telephone. Meow, 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 beautiful, oh, Mr. Rogers, meow. <clears throat> when Kevin asked for a story, he said, uh, maybe think of something you've lived through that was really messy. And right away, two things come to mind. Obviously, the first one is our current political situation, and the second one is my career, the entire thing. <laughs> I'm what you might call a career improv comedian. And uh, to be fair, the life of an improv career-minded comedian is, um, by choice, that's messy. It's uh, disorderly, it's chaotic, it's inconsistent, it's tangential, it's just, it's fucking messy. I'm 43 and it's still very messy. So oddly enough, when this very colossal fucking mess of a political situation really reached its fever pitch last year, it reminded me of a time when my scrappy little improv career actually linked up with the current political situation. <laughs> Back in the 90s, there were two goals for a career-minded improv comedian. Saturday Night Live and The Daily Show. Yeah! Yeah. No, if you were a woman, to be fair, just Saturday Night Live. Uh, it's, oh, it's fine. I'm not going to be on a fucking Daily Show. I have kids. I'm in my 40s. Nobody cares. It's fine. It's fine. I'm okay. We're all okay. Um, and then there was this big, giant employment hole, and way down at the other end of the improv comedy spectrum were uh, Teaching Forever at UCB and Renaissance Festivals, uh, both of which I am proud to say I have done. And I loved improv in the 90s, and I still do. I loved it. From the first icebreaker I did as a warm-up for Kitty Musical Theater for a production of Wizard of Oz, we did Freeze Tag. And it was so fucking funny. I was like, why are we doing the Wizard of Oz? Let's just perform freeze tag. <laughs> and the girl who played Dorothy did not like that. <laughs> I loved improv because it was immediate and it was unpredictable and because you didn't ever have to memorize anything and I was so fucking lazy. And I didn't just love doing it, I loved watching it. 
When UCB came on the scene in New York City, I went to the shows, I went to as many as I could, and they made shit up like it was pre-written by the National Lampoon. It was just fucking magic. And fast forward to the early aughts, when two more things happened that forever altered the course of improv history. The first was Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm was the show that was known for being totally improvised. It wasn't silly, like whose line is it anyway, and it was genuinely funny, and suddenly scores of Second City and Groundling students could explain to their parents what the fuck they were doing. Because whose parents didn't love Larry David? He just makes it up. I mean, he just makes it. I mean, it's just like Larry, they could finally explain to their friends what it was that you were draining them of money for. And it was great. And suddenly every commercial and TV audition that came along suddenly added into the description, like, feel free to ad-lib. It's just going to be like Curb Your Enthusiasm. And having UCB on your resume no longer had to be explained. Improv comedy was going legit. And the other thing that happened around that time was reality TV. Suddenly there was this explosion of cheap programming featuring horrible people doing dumb shit. (laughs) And the hottest reality show trend, the prank show. Punked and all of its spawn. And most of these spawn needed funny people who can just think on their feet to carry out all of these hilarious situations where you make anyone from celebrities to ordinary people look like incredible assholes. So all of a sudden, my friends and I had like 10 auditions a week for actual TV shows. It was incredible. So it's 2004, and I get an audition for what is described as an improvised prank show on Fox. Guaranteed 10 episodes, real network, curb your enthusiasm vibe, all of it. This show was going to be so big that we had to sign non-disclosure agreements to even audition. So do you guys remember my big, fat, obnoxious fiancé? No? Okay. Okay. This was a show where a woman and a guy had to pretend they were engaged for the purposes of winning money for them and their families. The twist was that he and his family were really a bunch of improv comedy actors pretending to be gross, disgusting animal people. That was not the show I was auditioning for. My show was the spinoff called My Big Fat Obnoxious Boss, which was sort of a fake apprentice where real contestants were all going to try to get a fake job with the fake Trump. Now, Fiance had been a huge hit for Fox. I hadn't seen it, but people loved it. And this show was gonna be the follow-up. I remember running into like one of my best friends at the time, we did a lot of improv classes together and I was dying to tell her the good news, right? But I had signed the NDA. So I was like, I got this job, but I can't really talk about it. And she was like, oh my God, this was before OMG. Oh my God, oh my God. I got this job, but I can't talk about it either. So after basically 10 more seconds of honoring the NDA, we revealed that we were both going to be on the newest hit for Fox TV. And we were so psyched that we were gonna be super famous together. So I was cast as the fake Carolyn to the fake Trump in The Fake Apprentice. Now, in case you don't remember the OG Apprentice back before it was all really fancy people like Brett Michaels and Kate Goslin, um, there was Trump, and then in the seat next to him was his faithful co-business expert woman, Carolyn. She was blonde, she wore a tailored suit like a boss, and mostly she just stared. That was me. 
the guy they cast as the fake Trump was an actual attorney who had like been dabbling in improv classes and really looked the part of a middle-aged businessman. Now, my friend, who also violated the NDA, was cast <laughs> as fake Trump's fake spoiled daughter. So we'll call her fake Ivanka. So we go to Chicago for six weeks in the middle of the summer to shoot. To prepare, the producers put us through a half-day workshop on venture capitalism, since this was what our fake company did, and we would need to look like we sort of knew what we were doing, right? We also had to figure out our characters before the contestants arrive, right? So create a little backstory, hammer out how we would interact with the contestants to milk the most comedy out of the whole thing. And I kept pitching ideas to the producers. I was like, okay, what if my Carolyn is like a total emotional mess, right? Like, like just fucking Bridget Jones. She is crying and she's just always super needy and emotionally inappropriate and let me eat ice cream during the big presentations. That'd be hilarious. And they were like, that is so great. Um, we were thinking more you could just be like a monster cunt. (laughs) So if in The Real Apprentice, the Carolyn, the real Carolyn, her job was to be like a strong female role model and sort of offer advice while judging people's business acumen, my job was going to be to directly insult and emasculate anyone who made (laughs) eye contact with me. After meeting with the producers, fake Ivanka comes up to me and is like, they keep telling me I should play it super sexy. Like, almost like they kind of implied they don't want me to wear a bra. And I was like, you have to wear a bra. <laughs> you have boobs. <laughs> you boobs. Your boobs can't be on TV without a bra. And she was like, no shit. <laughs> I'm only a teensy bit sad to report that they never suggested that I sex it up. But whatever. I was a frigid bitch. Fine. Whatever. Okay, fine. Um... It was also decided that our fake Trump was going to be played like an oversexed, spoiled baby sociopath with crazy whims and inconsistent business philosophies. <laughs> right? He was probably going to make a lot of crude remarks about everything and everyone around him. <laughs> he also had a catchphrase. Instead of, you're fired, he was going to say, get the hell out of my office. <laughs> so funny. (laughs) Now, the contestants were real people who wanted to go on a Fox reality show to win some money and get a real job in a corporation. Super quality people? Maybe not. But did they deserve to be fucked with? I really needed to not ask that question to get through the day. It's one of the first days that we're shooting, and I show up with the fake Trump, and we're positioned on top of a hill above an open field, and I look down about a quarter mile down the hill, and there is some office equipment there in the middle of the field, like a photocopier and a coffee maker on a table, and then there's just other weird office shit, like a lamp and a desk, and uh, there's also the contestants, and they're in their full business attire, and they're looking understandably super fucking confused, and it's like, it looks like Braveheart meets office space. And I'm handed a list of orders to start yelling at them. Damien! Damien, hey! I need 700 copies of that memo in under 60 seconds. Go! Damien jumps and he starts making photocopies in the middle of a field. And to my right, I suddenly hear bang, 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 bang! What the fuck? I turn and I look over and I see that fake Trump is armed with a paintball gun. (laughs) 
and he is now pelting Damien with paintballs as he tries to make the copies. Uh, 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 Annette, go get that steaming hot cup of coffee and don't spill a drop. Bring it to Whitney. Bring it to Whitney. Bang, 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 bang. Ow, ow. Don't paintballs like bruise? Um, also, they're wearing their own personal clothing. What is happening? So now I'm actually just trying to help these people avoid getting shot with paint. Michael, Michael, duck, duck down behind the fax machine. Duck down, duck down, Michael. And I, I can see the panic in their eyes, and I can see that they definitely do not understand what this challenge has to do with business, but bless their hearts, they're giving it their all. And I, I got a note from the producers after that challenge, they felt I was being too helpful to them as they ran around trying to not get shot. Okay, note taken. Then there were the boardroom elimination sessions, right? Where on one side, me, fake Trump, fake other fucking guy whose name I don't remember, and the contestants on the chopping block on the other, they're making their cases to not get cut, begging some of them, crying some of them, and we, while they're giving their testimonials and, and saying I should be here because this challenge, blah, blah, blah. We are throwing uh, Nerf balls at their heads and rolling bowling balls across the table them and trying to hit them with water balloons. And the goal is that they are not to flinch even if they are crying during their begging. It was like being the bullies in a John Hughes movie. They're crying and we're walking up to them and going, doink. <laughs> And then I, then I finally get what I think is my chance to improvise. Because I'm going to host a tea party for the female contestants. And I'm like, okay. I start preparing this incredible meltdown. I don't know why I ever went into business school. I should have run off with that professional clown. And I think it's hilarious. But when I get there, the writers insist on me doing their version. So ladies, great job on the paintball challenge. So listen, you're women. I'm a woman. You girls want to get ahead, got to get on your knees. Not to beg. Blowjobs, you gotta get blowjobs. Wendy. I didn't say it, but that was the implication. So now instead of a John Hughes movie, I'm doing nine to five, and I am Dabney Coleman. It feels like I should point out at this time that there were actually writers on the show. Every reality show has writers. Sometimes they actually write scripted bits and lines like the Dorothy Parker-esque, get the hell out of my office. But they also help the editors find those meaningless moments of fake fucking sexual tension, and you know this. One of the best writer pitches was for fake Ivanka. They thought it would be hilarious if she only hit on the one black contestant. Bring him to the fake Trump as her crush. Hey, daddy. We were like, don't get it. Don't know why that's funny. And they were like, you know. And we're like, no, we don't, we don't know. Why is that funny? And they're like, you know. I'm sorry, I don't get what you're saying. Anyway, Ivanka flat out refuses to play out Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, so they punish her by not using her in the next few episodes. She sat in her hotel room and watched reruns of The Soprano. <laughs> Lucky bitch. It's probably also worth noting that one of the two writers on this show went on to write a memoir about how around the time of this show, he left his beautiful wife and new baby son for a year of sex and drug-fueled oat sewing. It's called Year of the Cock. And according to its Amazon ratings, it's fucking terrible. 
please keep in mind that these shoots were very, very long. Those boardroom eliminations were like eight hours. So for minimum eight hours, I not only had to be a fucking demon to these people, but I had to deal with the fact that they clearly and understandably hated me. I hated me. The crew hated me. They didn't know we weren't real business people. They had to be in the dark because what if one of the contestants saw me being nice to the guy who was putting my mic on or putting powder on my face? This wasn't a big budget production. We didn't have private dressing rooms, so I was always on, even when I wasn't being filmed, to keep up the joke. Get it? She's a bitch. And I do get it. I understand. I know. I know that some people are fine with pranks and practical jokes, but I used to get uncomfortable when there was a misunderstanding on Three's company. <laughs> Why can't someone just tell Chrissy that Janet's in the kitchen and then we'll all be on the same page? <laughs> I started losing my appetite. I would look at the craft service table and just get nauseous. I lost weight and I called my mom and I was like, Mom, I can't tell you exactly what this job is, but it's just, I feel horrible all the time. And she was just like, why? Isn't it like Larry David? I thought you'd do what Larry David does. And I might have only been pretending to be a total asshole, but there was like a fuck ton of very real, unfiltered negative energy directed at me. And I started to realize that there are so many people that move through their days completely unaffected by this black energy directed at them. And the ability to ignore it or to not feel it is what it must mean to be an actual sociopath. So there was an upshot. I was not a sociopath. <laughs> One day I get in the elevator at this crappy hotel that we are staying at and uh, the producer is in there with this woman and he's like, oh, this is uh, Dr. So-and-so, uh, Jamie. She's the psychologist for the show. And I was like, oh my God, I am... Oh, I'm so happy to see you. I just feel so guilty and weird all the time. And I, I just, I feel terrible. And I know they're not super bright, the contestants, but I just feel like they don't deserve to be fucked with. And it's just, ah. and um, there was just this horrible pause. And uh, uh, the producer just goes, no, no, she's here for the contestants. And I was like, ha, huh. elevator door open, out, close. Honestly, if you want to know more about the show, there is way fucking more than I thought there would ever be on Wikipedia. They have all that. But I, what I do remember isn't as much what we shot as how I felt. And what I would have told that shrink if she had been there for us is that I hated pretending to be a bitch for hours on end. I hate that I just can't tell these business majors that they're going to feel and look really stupid when this is over. And I hate Chicago, it is so humid. And I hate that I wanna perform comedy and they're saying that that's what I'm doing because it really doesn't feel like that at all. I wish I knew who to credit this to, but years ago in New York, I heard um, someone say that the difference between stand-up and improv is that stand-up is rehearsed and rehearsed just to look like it's coming off the top of your head. And improv comes off the top of your head, but it should look like it's been rehearsed and rehearsed. Improv was fun. It was risky, it was joyful, and it was always performed with a contract in place with the audience. They knew that it was being made up on the spot and they were ready to accept that it was just spontaneous and everybody knew that we're all in agreement, it was improv. I was missing that contract. There was no contract here. After the show wrapped, 
Fake Ivanka and I left Chicago, waited to see if the final product would at least cut together well and make us super famous. Spoiler alert, it did not. It was a huge bomb. The ratings were so bad that they aired half of the episodes and then they said they would air the rest online, which in 2004 sounded like the rest will air uh, on a radio in your toilet. (laughs) With buffering. (laughs) I don't remember how, but I managed to get hold of one of the email addresses for one of the contestants, this really sweet lug of a guy from my hometown of Boston. And I was like, I remember, I was like, hey, Michael. Uh, I know that you know by now that I am an actor and the whole thing was total bullshit and I guess I'm just, I'm so, so sorry and he was so good-natured about the whole thing and he was sweet and he was like, ah, forget it, whatever, you know, whatever, he was very sweet. And so I, but I kept feeling like I had to keep apologizing and then he just stopped returning my emails. (laughs) Eventually, Ivanka and I learned to use our very hard-practiced improv skills to perform and write and make podcasts and do a hundred things in Hollywood between Renaissance festivals and SNL. And I'm not dead. I watch some reality TV. Naked and Afraid is like the best fucking show ever. There's no free $5,000 for a trip to Brazil. Just never take it. They're going to sew heroin into your suitcase. But... The very, like, raw cynicism and lack of compassion in all of what I saw just forever changed the way I approach what I watch and the jobs that I take and, uh, I guess, the politics that I subscribe to as well. And, and I don't mean to harp on a debate from 15 years ago about reality TV not being real, okay? But isn't it kind of impossible to ignore the impact of reality TV when you look at the now? I mean, isn't it kind of what pushed the door open for social media? Hasn't YouTube and Facebook Live made us all reality TV producers? And what about Twitter? You know, it's like Twitter allows all of us to yell out every single jizzed out thought in real fucking time. And reality TV played a huge part in life being documented and watched and consumed and discarded constantly and at record speed. I remember so clearly how it felt when dishonest and abusive people would do anything for ratings. Which I guess leads us back to our current political situation. I was on a reality show that parodied the reality show that our president was the star of. If that's not messy, I don't know what is. To make everything stop and kill the fall when you come back down. I'm not everything you want, I'm just a tease. Maybe I'm out of touch. You can tell me what you want, I'll give it to you. Maybe you think too much. Cause you're Hollywood.
is Risk. This is Rack behind me now. And we just heard from Jamie Denbo. You can keep up with Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Denbo. Before that, we heard a completely ridiculous snippet of Mr. Rogers. You know, the episode's called Make Believe. So we found a recording of Mr. Rogers in his land of make believe singing about cats and telephones and God only knows what, maybe Lady Elaine Fairchild. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever else was going on in his make-believe land where the trolley went. Remember? Oh, my God, did that man have hot tennis shoes. Hey, we have a new sponsor, and I'm really excited about them. I am a voracious reader of magazines, but there's no way to carry around all that material. Texture. This new app called Texture has so many magazines right at your fingertips on your phone. Esquire, Time, National Geographic, Entertainment Weekly, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Details, GQ, Newsweek, New York Magazine. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. It's amazing what you can so suddenly have at your fingertips. Texture makes magazines easily searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, view bonus video content. They can even curate articles and magazines just for you or whoever you're giving Texture to this year. Texture's normally $9.99 per month and you get over 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash risk, you get a 14-day free trial. Why subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you can have so many of your favorites on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less? It's one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps. Again, 14-day free trial when you go to texture.com slash risk. 14 days to try it for free. Go to texture.com slash risk risk. And now a word from someone who is very near and dear to us on our staff, our story producer, Cindy Freeman. So I am so excited to talk about La Tote. I love this service. I live in Brooklyn and I hate shopping. Um, that is because the clerks in my neighborhood either tend to uh, be on the cell phone texting when you're trying to ask them questions so they ignore you or conversely, they chase you around the store trying to convince you that that outfit that your mother would wear would look fabulous on you and they won't let you alone. So I dread shopping. And then there is La Tote. And La Tote is almost like it's a store and you go online and there is so much to choose from. There are so many tops and skirts and pants and jewelry and you choose items and they send them to you and then you get to wear them and, and then you get to put them back in this box that is uh, actually it's a bag and it's got a uh, postage on it you just send it back you go back online and you choose more things but wait if you actually like something you can buy it you can get as many totes as you want a month you simply wear them return and then you repeat Fashion shouldn't have to cost a fortune, and you can get up to $700 worth of clothing for only $39 a month. Go to La Tote, that is L-E-T-O-T-E dot com, and get started. Again, it's as low as $39 a month. You fill out your style profile. You sign up. You get a custom tote delivered right to your door. You wear what you want. You return everything else in the mail when you're done, and you will get a brand new box within days. 
Again, that is latote.com. Enter the code RISK and then feel fabulous with fashion delivered right to your door. And one more thing, guys. Remember that if you enter the promo code RISK at latote.com, you will get 50% off of your first month. Okay. We have we have one final story for this week's episode, and it comes from yours truly. It's been a while since I've shared a story of my own on the show. This was recorded just a couple months back at our monthly live show that we do at the Bell House in Brooklyn. If you live anywhere near New York, you gotta come out and see our Bell House shows. They are so great. Here I am <laughs> with a story we call The Wiz Kid. I have a brand new story tonight. And it's very kinky. <laughs> and it's very graphic. So buckle your seatbelts and let's see what happens. <laughs> All right. Do you guys remember that Zoloft commercial from I, a long time ago, but it was like a little blob. It was like a little egg that was laying on its side. And the announcer said, do you suffer from social anxiety? And I was like pouring my fourth glass of wine when I first saw that. And I was like, what? Social anxiety? Yes! I'm like that little blob. <laughs> Well, that's exactly what I was thinking for four days straight when this past August, I finally returned to kink camp. Now, the first time I ever went to one of these big sex fests in the woods was in 2011. And at the time, I remember saying to myself, oh my God, oh fuck, Kevin. The next time you come to one of these things, you have got to invite a play partner in case, you know, whoever else shows up at the goddamn thing, it doesn't end up working out, right? <laughs> so that first year, I did make a friend. His name was Bart, but he was not at all my type. He was a huge huge like teddy bear of a man with a beard down to his belly and I remember him saying to me at lunch one day you know all these barely clothed people at lunch he says hey Kev you think this camp is nuts well things are even more intense at kink camps just for men they don't have so many rules about things like consent <laughs> <laughs> basically they just have like a guy from the Bronx get up at lunch and say something like hey guys if anyone here happens to have a heart attack in the dungeon please just have the decency to take your dick out of your hand long enough to call an EMT <laughs> so 
<laughs> Bart said that one camp like this is so secret that it's by invite only. So last August, he invites me. So we're getting out of the car, right, at camp, and there's 300 men in the sunshine having a cocktail party, very first day. And the thing was, I couldn't bring a play partner this time. So you know how it is when you're at a party, everyone knows everyone, and you know no one. So the voices have already started in my head like, oh my God, what if they're not nice to me? And oh my God, what's the worst that could happen? Now, I had talked to this to my therapist the day before, and he said, well, Kevin, in situations with men, what is the worst that's ever happened? I said, oh my God. I said, I grew up as a tiny, tiny boy. Like from the earliest consciousness, I knew I was gay. I would fall head over heels in love with other boys, right? But I lived in constant terror that if one of them found out how I felt, he would not just reject me, but really hurt me, you know? And in the seventh grade, I finally tried coming out to someone for the first time. It was my best friend, Ben, and I had a big crush on him, and he went white. He just stared at me, and he said, you're sick. You disgust me. I had never been so wounded. But surely nothing like that would happen at this cocktail party at King Camp, right? <laughs> no. But what did happen was that suddenly, as we're standing there, this chubby guy standing right next to me starts screaming bloody murder because guys have ambushed him and grabbed him and tied him to a fence and are shooting paintballs at him. I thought... Holy fuck, what if that happened to me? I was like, is there even a washer and dryer here? Because I only brought one pair of jeans. And Bart said, yeah, that's an ambush. He said, it usually happens to the newcomers. Well, I got a vodka right then and there. I decided, yeah, I'm going to fall off the wagon just for the weekend. Bart said, well, just try to say yes. And don't yuck on someone's yum. Have you heard this expression before? In the kink community, they say, don't yuck on my yum. Meaning that if someone's thing does disgust you, <laughs> try not to say <laughs> so that, my friends, is something to keep in mind for later in the story. <laughs> Bart showed me this form, right? And he said, here's the thing. Everyone has what we call a dance card. On the first day, everyone schedules little kinky dates with other people. So I'll sign you up for some dates. I was like, what? And then 10 minutes later, he comes back with my card. He's like, I got your first date. He's like, it's 9.30 a.m. tomorrow, and it's needles. I was like, 
needles? I wasn't even quite sure exactly what that meant. So I was like, wait, 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 people are gonna put needles in me, like, uh, but that doesn't really hurt, does it? And he said, oh no, it hurts. (laughs) But you're in good hands. His name is Mr. Prickly. So the next morning at the dungeon, which is really just a big old barn, I meet Mr. Prickly. He looks like Santa Claus and he says, oh good, I'm going to create a ginger pin cushion. (laughs) I strip and he ties me to a table, right? And he pinches a little bit of skin on my chest and he says, now just breathe in and breathe out and he stabs me through with this needle and I thought, oh yes, that stings. But then I thought, oh, but it's not that bad. I lit up a little and then this pattern repeats again and again. And finally he says, now, Guess how many needles are in you? And I'm laying down, so I can't look up, and I say, is 60? And he says, oh my God, it's 59. You're really good at that. And I was like, well, I guess I have that talent. But then he goes to put the next one in me, and I feel my brain tensing up yet again. I feel myself thinking, oh no, it's gonna hurt, it's gonna hurt. And then it goes through and I'm like, yeah, but it's not that bad. And then it dawns on me. I think, wait a minute, I've had that same thought pattern 60 times, right? It's just like the social anxiety that had been riling through my head on the trip so far. I keep thinking, oh my God, are people gonna be mean to me? What's the worst that can happen? And then life happens and it's not so bad. And Mr. Prickly said, well now keep that little lesson in mind if you happen to be ambushed this weekend. Two days later, I'm in the dungeon again, and it's late at night, and I'm mesmerized, I'm hypnotized, because two twinkie lads, right, smooth, skinny young guys, just my type, are completely naked, and they're hovering 10 feet in the air over everyone else, because this master of ropes, right, has turned them into marionettes. So he's pulling a rope, and one guy ends up with his face in another one's crotch, and then he pulls another rope, and someone's ass is in someone's face. It was wonderful. (laughs) I remember thinking, holy shit, so much of the kink scene is kind of like taking rides at the amusement park, right? (laughs) So a crowd of us is staring in wonder at this puppet show when suddenly I become aware that this young man that I've been interested in all weekend is standing right next to me. He's so cute. He's this little Puerto Rican guy named Diego. He's in his 20s. He's got curly hair and this constant mischievous grin, right? And next to him is this older guy that I don't know, but real handsome, a real rugged looking guy. Looked like he might be like a marine captain or something like that. We can call him Ed Harris. (laughs) So Diego says, I might have to take a date off of my dance card for tomorrow night so I can attend the big water sports party. And Ed Harris says, don't dress up. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I say, yeah, I'm curious about that. You know, I couldn't believe how turned on I was the first time a guy used me as a human urinal. Now, this might be a good place to pause the story. <laughs> Especially because you might now be yucking on my yum. <laughs> Well, I wasn't lying to these guys. About a year earlier, this fella that I often play with named Cheng had surprised me in a big way. He had burst into my apartment, put me in the shower, put me on my knees, and told me to open my mouth and let loose a torrent of pee that seemed to go on forever. But here's the thing. I worshiped this guy, Cheng. He was so thoughtful. He was always asking me how I felt about things, right? Plus, he kind of looked like a Chinese Harry Potter, so... <laughs> I was swooning. And there's something extra worshipful about being on your knees and relishing even a person's nastiest stuff. As long as he's not one of those guys whose pee tastes like a rotten lime soaked in battery acid. Now, back to the story. You will recall that Diego and Ed were standing next to me, and I said, you know, I couldn't believe how turned on I was the first time a guy used me as a human urinal. Well, Diego looked at Ed, and Ed looked at Diego, and they nodded, and the ambush began. Ed grabs me in a headlock. Diego is pushing me out of the dungeon. Ed's yelling out, we have a urinal here, huh? <laughs> and I'm saying, oh, no, 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 no. But anyone can see my body is not resisting. <laughs> Diego gets handcuffs on my wrist behind my back. And you know what I feel when they click? Relief. A whole weekend of worrying, what's the worst that can happen? And now this surely might be it. But with a click of those cuffs and being the center of attention and being dominated by two hot guys that I just instinctively trust, everything is shifting. I'm not a guy worrying over possibilities in his head. In this entrapment, I don't have options for second-guessing where I'm going, and that is, paradoxically, so freeing. I'm going with the flow now. <laughs> so they bring me outside to a grassy knoll. You know, so many interesting things happen on grassy knolls. <laughs> And amazingly, there is a line to use the bathroom outside the barn. And Ed shouts to the shadows, Oh, don't use those urinals, boys. Use this one. And Diego says to someone, Ooh, take his cell phone out of his pocket. And someone takes my phone and throws it where it won't get wet, unlike my shirt and my jeans. And I think, Christ, I still don't know if there is a laundry anywhere on these campgrounds. <laughs> But I feel taken care of because of the iPhone. You know, I feel on some level Diego and Ed are being respectful to me. So they shove me to my knees. And as shadowy figures start to gather all above me, 
Diego goes first. He's still got that mischievous grin on his face, and I notice that there's something really sweet behind it. There's some genuine sweetness in him, and his skin is so soft and warm, and he pulls out his cock, and the water starts to flow, and men start shouting, open your mouth, and I do with pleasure. I put my lips on his cock and start sucking for it like a thirsty man at a desert oasis. And his pitch is refreshing. With with Diego, I'm in bliss. Now in kink circles, you'll sometimes hear men say, a urinal should not have opinions about the quality of the piss. His job is just to take it. Well, I have opinions. Ed Harris is up next, and the taste is a lot harsher. But he's also pissing like a racehorse, so he can sense that he's pretty much waterboarding me, right? So he pulls back, and he starts to piss all over the crown of my head and right into my eyes and then down my chest. It's a baptism, right? I'm moaning half in desire and half in dread. (laughs) And I can hardly see now with so much piss stinging my eyes, but I'm arching my back toward all of them to like let them have at it. And that's when a bunch of them just let loose. Maybe like seven streams coming at me at once. And there's a river running down my chest down to this pool in the crotch of my jeans. Then there's this weird moment. (laughs) When a man who's like 80 years old is shuffled to the front of the crowd and someone's like, suck his cock too. And I find myself playing along, you know, with my mouth all of a sudden on this ancient nub of a dripping little penis, pretending it's not totally not my thing. You know, I am thrilled that gerontophiles exist people who have the hots for the elderly, but I think I'll probably be even more thrilled that they exist once I'm 80. (laughs) But there's no time to think about that because now a big muscle jock is shoving at me saying, open that mouth again. And I can't see him through the piss in my eyes, but I don't like the tone of his voice. You know, he's like, come on. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but the rudeness, I mean, it sounds like this man is about to piss in my mouth in a way that does not show me respect. (laughs) So you see, what is consensual can shift in a moment, right? So nevertheless, I think, you know, just like in improv, you gotta commit to the bit, so I open up. (laughs) And then there's this explosion of the foulest piss I have ever tasted in my life, right to the back of my throat, and I couldn't help it. It wasn't even my choice, I wasn't even thinking. I just barfed it all right back onto him. Soaking his jeans. He's like, what the fuck? 
He's like, oh, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, he can't stop pissing because it's just like a river and I can't stop just coughing it right back onto him. He's like, fuck, this faggot got piss all over me. And Ed Harris pats his chest and pushes him away saying, okay, all right, that's enough then, man. So the last streams were dying down, right? And I have one last little drink from beautiful Diego to kind of wash away the nastiness. And now I'm just a hot, wet mess on my knees in the grass as guys are zipping up their flies and saying, God damn, that was hot. That guy's quite a piss pig. And Diego uncliffs the cuffs and says, you were amazing. Let me get your phone. And Ed Harris helps me up and he's like, look at you, you are steaming in the cool night air. (laughs) I was proud. I mean, I had let go of worrying for a while and got to experience the good, the bad, and the ugly. That muscle jock, he was the worst thing that happened that weekend, but I cannot respect a man who shows no respect. Those childhood worries about being rejected and hurt, they don't serve me anymore. It turns out that even when I'm handcuffed and in an ambush, I won't take it. So as I walked away, Ed leaned in and he whispered, thanks for playing, bud. You gave that guy what he deserved. (laughs) I hope you're starting to feel at home here. So I'm sloshing through the woods, right? (laughs) Trying to get back to my cabin, trying to remember where the fucking thing even is. When a super tall, super skinny, super sweet looking man emerges from the shadows. Hello, dear, he says. I said, oh, uh, don't touch me, I'm, I'm sopping wet, I just got pissed all over. And he said, oh, I know you did, darling. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I'm Andy, the guardian angel of water sports at camp. <laughs> and after a fella falls into a sticky situation like you did just now, I like to bring a special little gift to him. I stared at this amazing man in wonder and I said, what's the gift? He held out a shiny object in his hand and said, the key to the secret laundry room. (laughs) Thank you very much.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Chuck Prophet behind me now. I think I can remind you that this is the show where you will hear stories that you will not hear anywhere else. And that's why it's so important to support us. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. And make sure to comment about Risk at the comments section on iTunes podcasts. Podcasts that have lots of comments, they do a lot better. They get much more attention. People should know that there is an alternative to shows like The Moth or This American Life or Snap Judgment where they can hear people speaking that freely, as you just heard me speaking in that story there. So spread the word, spread the word, let people know that risk is the alternative for, you know, stories that people just aren't going to hear anywhere else. Now, I am going to read you everywhere that risk is appearing next on April 29th. We are back in Minneapolis, Minnesota at Brave New Workshop. The show is at 730. Be there, Minneapolis. And on the very next day, on April 30th, Amy Salloway and I are going to be teaching a storytelling for your career workshop. Stories that you can share in the office or for job interviews or during presentations or anything like that. Storytelling workshop on April 30th with Amy Salloway and myself. Look that up at thestorystudio.org. Now, on May 13th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. We are back on May 13th in L.A. at the Bootleg Theater. Then on May 20th, we are in Denver, Colorado. Back in Denver on May 20th at the Bluebird Theater. The theme is Irresistible, and we're still taking pitches for that. You go to risk-show.com slash submissions to pitch us. On May 24th, we are back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. The theme is healing. That's going to be a hell of a show. On June 9th, Portland, Oregon, Revolution Hall. The theme that night is hype. On June 10th, Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project. The theme that night is destructive. On June 11th, we're in Vancouver, at St. James Hall, the theme is Monster. Now, to pitch us for any of those shows, June 9th in Portland, June 10th in Seattle, June 11th in Vancouver, just go to the submissions page at risk-show.com. On July 1st, North Adams, Massachusetts, that's at the Mass Mocha. The theme is Revolting, and we are still taking pitches for that one. That's July 1st at the Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. On July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. The theme that night is one of a kind. Still taking pitches for that one, D.C. On July 15th, we're in Philly. Uh, that is Revelation. Revelation is the theme of the show that night, and we're still taking pitches for that as well. September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah. The theme is Unexpected. Please pitch us for that one, too. That's all at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
face to barren waste without the taste of water. Ooh, water. Oh, Dan and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water. Damn, that guy's quite a piss pig. Uh.